All right, Matthew chapter 20. Uh, let's give our attention to just a few verses this morning. I want to read a larger section. If, if you're new to uh, our church, this is the first time you're here or the been a long time since you're here. We've been studying through Matthew verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph. And uh, we're all the way into chapter 20. And we're really wrapping up our study for this summer. We'll conclude at the end of chapter 20. And we'll take a, a break. We'll study in the Psalms all the way through August. And uh, we're going to study four of the Psalm, first four Psalms uh, with a break in between there uh, when Shannon Hurley, a missionary to Uganda, will be with us on the 15th of August to preach and uh, present God's work there in Uganda. So this is kind of, we're wrapping up a section, and what we're going to study today is dependent upon what we studied last week. So I'll try to catch you up after we've read it, and uh, make sure that we're all as much as we can be on the same page before launching into our study this morning. So let's read together, uh, beginning in verse number 17 from Matthew chapter 20, and we'll read all the way to the end of the chapter. I think that'll help set the context for us. These are the words of God to us this morning. And as Jesus was going to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priest and scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he'll be raised on the third day. It's the first time the disciples had heard the word crucified in relationship to Jesus. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, kneeling before him she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do, you, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one on your right hand and one on your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit on my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard this, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. All right, these are the words for our consideration this morning. We'll give our attention specifically to verses 17 through 19. Let's pray and ask God to help us as we study. Father, thank you for this privilege now that lies before us as we open your word and as we give our attention to your word. We acknowledge that it is alive and it is sharp and it is powerful. And we desire to submit before it. We ask for help 
from your spirit, by your grace, that we might understand it. That we might not simply glean the knowledge of the facts that are represented, but that we might understand it, that we might be internally affected by it, and that our lives might be transformed through it. This will be your work in us. We ask that you would do it. We ask for clarity. I ask that you would give grace and special grace during the proclamation of your word, that it might be clearly communicated and clearly received. We will turn back praise and glory to you for what you accomplish through your word, knowing that your word never goes out and returns void. It never goes without accomplishing exactly what you've sent it to accomplish. And so we ask for these things, dependent upon you, looking to you, and expecting you to do in our lives what you have intended to do through your word, shaping and molding us to look like Christ. We ask for these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the context of the verses that we've just read is directly connected in the near context, directly connected to the verses that we studied last week. We studied all of verses 1 through 16 last Lord's Day, and we saw there Jesus explaining with a parable the simple axiom, the paradox that defines the kingdom greatness. He said in verse number 30 of chapter 18 that the the, the first will be last and the last first. And he picks up that theme in verse number one and carries it through verse 16. And in verse 16, we find him saying, so the last will be first and the first last. Jesus explaining to the disciples that the kingdom was something otherworldly. And using a real life business illustration as the parable and the structure with, 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 with which he taught that simple truth. He exposed them to the reality that sovereign grace, grace from God in his authority, sovereign grace is the great theme of the kingdom. It equalizes. It's the banner that all of God's people wear. And so whether they be great or whether they be small, whether they be first in line and noticeable or whether they be last, the the kingdom upends all the normal parameters by which we would gauge greatness. And those who are first are, are last, and some who are prominent will be insignificant within the kingdom rewards. And those who are insignificant might be rewarded with prominence. Because faithfulness, living within the sovereign grace of God, is the great theme of the kingdom. And with that theme declared and then articulated in verses 1 through 16, Jesus now. Jesus now embodies that theme in verses 17 through 19. And I believe Matthew is setting us up with almost a clean break in this chapter. If you look at chapter 20, I believe you can look at it in two sections. You can have the kingdom paradox, that is last, first, first, last. The kingdom paradox explained in the parable. And in the second half of the chapter, verses 17 through 34, which we just read, you see the kingdom paradox illustrated. You see it illustrated favorably. You see it illustrated not so favorably. And we will see it illustrated this morning, ultimately. Because this morning what we find is the ultimate greatness embodied in our Lord Jesus Christ. He will be the one who puts on display for us what greatness within His kingdom represents. There is one big theme this morning that 
kind of covers this paragraph that we'll study in verses 17 through 19. And this one theme or the big idea, if you're a note taker, is this. The path to the cross, that is Jesus' path to the cross, marks him with ultimate greatness. The path to the cross marks Jesus with ultimate greatness. Now, I'm well aware that the word ultimate is tired in our culture. I did a Google search and I just typed in ultimate on my internet browser. There are ultimate burritos. There are ultimate driving experiences. There are ultimate vacation getaways. There is ultimate Frisbee. You didn't know it, but there's ultimate Frisbee. There could be no other Frisbee. It's ultimate Frisbee. There is an ultimate HD viewing experience. Ultimate is a tired word. It's kind of like awesome. Uh, we, we should shy away from words that don't mean much to us. But I couldn't come up with another word for what we're talking about this morning. The marketing scheme within our culture and our society has overblown promises. I'm, I mean, cars offer you the ultimate experience. Really? It's ultimate? There's no other experience that could even compare. I looked up in Webster's Dictionary, which has fallen on hard times these days. Webster's Dictionary sets the record straight, and it highlights that the word ultimate means last. It means final. And, and the reason we use the word ultimate is it's as if the last one has come. There, there's nothing that could come after this that could ever improve upon this. And in that sense, we apply this word this morning in the big idea. The way to the cross of Calvary marks Jesus with ultimate greatness. There will be no one greater to come. There will be no other one who will embody with all the fullness, the greatness of Jesus Christ. The greatness of the kingdom is perfectly, without blemish, embodied in the king of the kingdom, our Lord himself. He's the final greatness, and he is put on display in this final passion prediction. This is the third and final time that Jesus will tell the disciples what is coming. And Luke would inform us they didn't get it. They didn't understand what he was saying. What seemed so clear to us, this side of the cross, was incredibly difficult for them to comprehend on that side of the cross. So let's consider this morning in kind of a, a different way. Let's consider three observations from this final passion prediction. This is Christ on the way to Calvary. And let's notice three observations that highlight for us that the path to the cross identifies it marks Jesus with ultimate greatness. There are three truths or three observations that come from, I trust, come right off the page of reading verses 17 through 19. In fact, the familiarity of these verses and the familiarity of the subject matter that Jesus is talking about loses itself in its impact on us. We're so familiar with what he's talking about that in some ways we've lost the ability to be shocked by the words he uses. But there are observations that I think if we'll pause long enough in verses 17 through 19, the, these observations and the reality of what's taking place on the way to Calvary has a dramatic impact upon our lives, has a dramatic influence upon the way we think this week, on what is 
is at the center of our passions this week and in how we live our lives this week. So the three observations are relatively simple. Jesus went willingly. Jesus went knowingly. And Jesus went expectantly. What is it about the path to the cross that marks Jesus with ultimate greatness? Well, it's these three observations from this text. He went willingly, he went knowingly, and he went expectantly. These three observations highlight for us the greatness of the kingdom personified, not illustrated, personified in Jesus. He embodies greatness. He is the ultimate great one within the kingdom. So let's examine first the implicit reality that Jesus went willingly to Calvary. Notice verses 17 and 18. And Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. So he is, in fact, going up. This doesn't mean he had moved to a specific spot below Jerusalem. Jerusalem was set on a hill, and it was common vernacular to say Jesus went up. So Matthew uses words that are common. Everybody went up to Jerusalem. I mean, ultimately, even if you were... Ultimately, even if you were... Uh, parallel with Jerusalem, to get to it, you had to go up. So you, you would go down into the valley, you would come up to Jerusalem. So Jesus is, in fact, heading up to Jerusalem, and he has the 12 disciples with him. And with special care, he pulls them aside. These must have been treasured moments for the disciples, even in their confusion. Jesus says, guys, come here. Pulls them off the way, off the trail, and he says, verse 18 to them, we are going up to Jerusalem. We are. We're going to Jerusalem. And Jesus declares his intent. It's explicit. This is the movement toward Calvary. And he's doing it intentionally. Jesus is not unaware. There's not some mystical leading of the Father where Jesus is just taking another step. He has no idea where this trail ends. He knows exactly where it ends. And what highlights the greatness of Jesus within the kingdom is that he goes to the cross willingly. The sacrifice was intentional. Jesus was not forced to Calvary. He was not taken and, and by compulsion jammed to the cross. He went to Jerusalem intentionally. The scriptures are crystal clear on this submission and willingness on the part of Jesus to go to Calvary. I thought we would look at a few of the texts that highlight this most clearly for us. So let's turn in our Bible, turn to the right to John chapter 10. John chapter 10 is a famous section of your New Testament. It's famous for the clear instruction that Jesus gives about his role as shepherd and about all under shepherds who would serve his people, his flock, his sheep in his absence. But it is in John chapter 10 that we find a very startling statement from Jesus. If you were unconvinced that he went willingly to the cross, notice these words in verse number 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they must listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it up again. 
No one takes it, that is my life, from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Just a few few pages to the right again. 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you're unfamiliar with your Bible, that's fine. You can listen. I'll read these verses to you. Verse number Verse number 5 in 1 Timothy chapter 2 highlights this same reality. For there is one God, Paul says to Timothy, and there is one mediator between God and men, holy God, sinful humanity. There's one person that can stand in the middle between them, the man, Christ Jesus. Now notice verse 6. Defining Christ Jesus, Paul says, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. A ransom was paid. And Jesus offered himself as the ransom. He made the payment with his own life. No one can take his life. He alone has the authority and the privilege from the Father to give his life. And that's exactly what he foretells in Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. Jesus went willingly to Jerusalem, which, in fact, we will find shortly was going willingly to the cross. That defines him as the greatest, the ultimate greatness within his kingdom. This has eternal consequences for us. Jesus went willingly. He was compelled only by the will of his father. So when, when we see the personification of greatness within the kingdom, it's as if we have theory and then we have a flannel graph description of the theory. The theory is first, last, last, first. The flannel graph story that's given to us in Sunday school fashion is, is the parable of the servants. The master of the vineyard goes out at different hours of the day. He hires everybody at different times. He pays them from the last to the first. So the guys that work one hour end up getting the same payment as the ones who worked all day in the blazing sun. Putting on display that the equalizing of the kingdom is grace and sovereign grace. No businessman would do that. And Jesus paints the picture to to allow us to have more clarity about the theory, about the statement of fact. But here we see it embodied. Here we see Jesus living the kingdom greatness. And for us, it is necessary for us to understand that kingdom greatness is always preceded, always preceded by the capture of our will, the surrender of our will. Jesus, Jesus ultimately surrendered his will. You're most familiar with the last moment of his surrender in the garden. He is sweating blood. The stress upon his system is overwhelming him. And he cries out, not my will, but yours to the father. So Jesus goes willingly now. He will go willingly then. It was all a surrender of his will, which marks him as the ultimate great one of the kingdom. This is kingdom greatness personified. It's an ultimate illustration. It's an embodiment of kingdom greatness. Jesus was only and always compelled by the will of the Father and the advancement of the Father's glory. 
So how great are we within the kingdom? You see what you see what happens here? Jesus embodies the ultimate. But we're in him. We follow him. We're disciples. He's a teacher. We learn from him. We walk his steps. We do what he does. And Jesus displays for us first, last, last, first, grace being the equalizer. Here's what it looks like within the kingdom. It's a surrender of the will. He goes willingly to Jerusalem to give his life, the ultimate surrender to the Father's will and for the Father's glory. So the path to the cross, the path for the cross marks out Jesus as ultimate greatness. What does greatness within the kingdom look like? It looks like Jesus Christ. And the more we resemble the character and the mindset and the passion and the surrender of Jesus Christ, the more like him we become, the more glory we give to the Father, and the more great we become within the kingdom. It's the end of us. It'll cost us everything. It's the same as the starting point within the kingdom. Growth is the continual process of becoming what we are, which is nothing except for followers of Christ, dependent upon his grace and the power of his spirit. So Jesus goes willingly to Jerusalem. The second observation that comes from these verses is that Jesus goes knowingly. It's not just that he goes there expecting the father to accomplish his kingdom purposes in him without any knowledge of what it what, what it would entail. Jesus is explicit in, in what he describes is going to happen at Jerusalem, exercising his role as the, the greatest of the prophets. Jesus now prophesies these words to the disciples. And the Son of Man, speaking of himself in relation to humanity, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, Matthew records, And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. Jesus did go willingly to the cross. But the path to the cross marks Jesus with ultimate greatness because Jesus also went knowingly. He had a full appreciation for what was coming. And yet he told the disciples, see, we are going to Jerusalem. Jesus did not go to Jerusalem with some misinformed glee about the kingdom or some misguided expectation of a military overthrow, which would embody the first part of chapter 21 that we'll study in a few weeks. When the crowds were throwing branches down and saying, Hosanna, they were expecting something that God had never planned for. That Jesus was going to come to Jerusalem to overthrow Rome and to set up Israel again in its glory. Oh no, Jesus knew exactly what would happen In Jerusalem. Notice what he tells the disciples. Don't miss these shocking, disturbing prophetic words. Jesus knew that he would be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. There was one man who was primarily responsible for that deliverance. His name was Judas Iscariot. And all of the Gospels record consistently Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. Jesus was well aware that he would be betrayed, that he would be handed over, he would be delivered to the religious leaders of Israel that hated him so severely. But it would not end with betrayal and a lack of loyalty 
and a false disciple. It would go on from there. Those priests and scribes would condemn him to death. There would be a legal determination handed down about Jesus. There would be a mock trial and a correspondingly mock accusation that would lead to a mock injustice. Jesus would represent the greatest injustice of all time for he would be killed in perfection. No sin had ever taken place. No sinful word, no sinful thought, no sinful action, no sinful attitude. He was pure in every way, tempted like us, but without sin. And he was aware on the side of the trail with the 12 disciples. We're going to go to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, I'm going to be delivered over. And you know what else is going to happen? They're going to condemn me to death. They're going to kill me. We're going. It's an act of the will, but it's an act of the will with knowledge. Jesus is the greatest of the kingdom. He is ultimate greatness for he goes to the cross willingly. He lays down his life. He sacrifices everything for the will of the Father to the glory of the Father's name. And he does so with full knowledge of the implications of that surrender. He would be delivered over. He would be condemned to die. And then he would be delivered again. Not to other Jewish leaders, but to the Roman authorities. He would be handed to the Gentiles. And under the authority of the Gentiles, Jesus was aware that he would be mocked. That they would scorn him. That they would cover his face and punch him. And ask him, which one of us hit you? That they would call him king when he was the king. When they would mock him and put upon his scourged back clothes that would tear at his flesh and they would bow down before him in revelry, mocking him. This is the creator of all that exists. What makes him the ultimate greatness of his kingdom is that he knew these things and he went. He knew that he would be flogged That's an interesting word. We don't use that often. In fact, I was trying to think of the last time I had seen within our media the word flogged. The only time I could think of was that guy that got caned in some other country for like spitting or something on the sidewalk. I can't remember what he did. Threw his gum out or something. And he got caned. He was flogged. This is an unfamiliar concept. And we can be happy that this is an unfamiliar concept. Jesus was aware, he knew, that he would be whipped by these Gentiles to the point of being humanly unrecognizable. Brothers and sisters, if we were to see Jesus after he had been mocked and flogged, we would vomit. We would cover our eyes. We would not look. We're so familiar But he knew exactly what he was facing. He knew exactly what would happen. And the greatness of the kingdom is seen in him as he lays down his life. He is the ultimate servant and slave. He is the greatest of the kingdom. And he's the one we follow. He concludes with a shocking word, no doubt, to the disciples. Though they couldn't grasp what he was saying says that the Gentiles would mock him and flog him, and then he would be crucified. 
This was the most horrific execution ever devised. It was made horrific on purpose. It was to be both humiliating and prolonged. There was to be incredible pain. The Roman soldiers were experts in creating pain. And crucifixion crucifixion represented their highest achievement. It was lasting pain at a scale that we, I trust, will never experience. Utter humiliation. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ was beaten to the point of being unrecognizable and then hung naked on a tree in the most agonizing and humiliating death known to mankind. And on the side of a trail, he pulls the twelve, including the one who would deliver him to the, the priests and the scribes, and he says, this is what's happening. We're going. And when we get there, here's what you can expect. He went willingly in submission to the Father. He went expectantly, as we'll see in a moment, and he went fully knowing the pain and the suffering that would wait him. Jesus' humble obedience is what drove his will toward Jerusalem. You say, what would keep you going? If, if you're like me, you're sitting reading this and you're thinking, I would be wanting a distraction from the way to Jerusalem. Anything but this. I mean, what would keep Jesus walking toward Jerusalem? He would continue to minister. He would continue to serve others all the way to this that he's going to knowingly. It was his humble submission to the Father. It was the glory of the Father as the highest end. The greatness of God put on display. Drove Jesus in his obedient walk to Jerusalem. So then I ask again. How great are we within the kingdom? What drives us? What motivates us? Are we so so informed by the world around us, so conformed? We look so much like the world that what drives us is actually worldly ambition. We want things for here. We believe the commercials that say we'll be satisfied. We seek after idols and we make idols, even out of the blessings that God has given to us. Or are we consumed and growing more and more consumed with the glory of the Father as displayed in our allegiance to Jesus Christ? Because to be a disciple of Jesus is to be progressively learning to observe everything He's commanded us. Greatness within the kingdom is seen, is embodied, is personified in the ultimate one, Jesus, as He goes willingly, knowingly, and expectantly to the cross. Verse 19 ends with that third observation. Jesus speaking in the third person about himself, and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus went to the cross expectantly. Jesus went to the cross, if you want to put it in our kind of Christian vernacular, he went to the cross with an eternal perspective. Jesus' life was marked by being able to see what was presently in front of him as a human being with the scope and the the panorama of eternity behind it. The backdrop of all that existed in his life, even the cross, the backdrop behind it was, was all of heaven's glories, resurrected life. And he clearly communicates this to the disciples. And yet they did not understand 
Scripture both affirms that the Father and the Son are involved in the resurrection of Jesus. Here we find Jesus highlighting the Father's role as he passively says he will be raised. We've just read from John chapter 10 that it's his authority to lay it down and to pick it up. Both the Father and Son were involved in this glorious expectation that accompanied Jesus to the cross. Jesus willingly and knowingly moved toward Calvary, comforted by the expectation of his resurrection. So, kingdom greatness. If, if Jesus is ultimate in his greatness, there is no one, there is no one who will surpass him. His supremacy is, is undoubted and it cannot be competed against. If that is true, I believe it's embodied here in, in the willingness with which he lays down his life. The knowledge that he carries even as he, as he obeys the Father. And the expectancy, the eternal perspective, the grid through which he looks at the circumstances that he would face in Jerusalem. Jesus had an undying and unwavering confidence in the Father's word. The Father said he would be raised, he would be raised. Jesus went to the cross expectantly, full knowledge, and with a total submission of his will to the Father's desires. That's why the path to the cross makes Jesus ultimate greatness within his kingdom. That's why every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. There will be no competitors. Every knee, either forced or in humble submission to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now there's some helpful things for us to consider as we walk away from Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. God never intended for us to come here this morning and to pile up some knowledge and to leave here unaffected. So let's consider how we might be affected by this word so that we might live more carefully for the glory of the Father and for the kingdom purposes that he has called us to. A few thoughts by way of application. Number one, the way to the cross that Jesus personifies here is a living illustration for our church's unity and our sacrificial service of one another. The way to the cross is the illustration that we should be using to evaluate our unity as a part of Grace Church of the Valley and our sacrificial service toward each other within Grace Church of the Valley. So here's the standard. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11 says, Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who didn't consider his equality with God a thing to be grasped or to held onto, but humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant in the flesh. He became human. Becoming obedient to death. Even the death of the cross. So here is, here is the mind of Christ that is to embody our unity as a body. As a local assembly gathered in Christ's name. And it should, it should be the illustration that informs our perspective on sacrificial service toward one another. So how much do we look like Christ in our relationship to those in the green chairs on the Lord's Day mornings? Or how much do we think someone else will serve them? 
there's plenty of people here. Surely somebody's taking care of it. Or, I don't have time for this. It's an inconvenience. Or, I've got history with that person. I don't really care what the gospel's done. I know who they are. Or are we being shaped and molded by the ultimate greatness of our Christ? Where we embody selfless submission and sacrificial service toward one another. Because we will find next week, greatness within the kingdom is slavery to the kingdom. So the way of the cross is a living illustration for our unity and our humility towards one another. How are we doing, Grace Church? We have, we have needs. We have people who are suffering. We have people who are struggling financially, who are struggling physically, who are struggling in their walk with Christ and in their sanctification. How much do we embody and look like our Christ who bears ultimate greatness within his kingdom? Or are we just yet another comfortable, casual, American church? Second thought for application this morning. The cross that awaited Jesus at Jerusalem is the tutor to our kingdom perspective and any resulting greatness in us. So, in other words, what, what Jesus perceived, what he looked at, the grid through which he looked at the cross is a grid for us. It's a tutor to our kingdom perspective. The will of the Father, the glory of the Father, the eternal perspective, the eternal realities that are in Christ. Colossians chapter 3, setting our eyes on Him and our mind on heavenly realities. It's exactly what Jesus was doing on His way to Calvary. It's exactly what we see Him telling the disciples with such clear words in Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. So then the question is begged of us in application. How do we keep the cross in clear view? How do we keep Jesus Christ and the ultimate greatness of Christ before our face? What are the ways, what are the means that God has supplied for us to keep the cross right here? As one would say, standing so close that we can hear the screams of Calvary is surefire humility for us. So how do we keep it that close? How do we stand close enough? Here's a few thoughts. We study the gospel in the word. We study the gospel in the word. The cross is the centerpiece of your Bible. Think of it like a centerpiece on your table. No matter where you sit at the table, everybody can see the centerpiece. Whatever flowers you brought in or whatever purchase you made, if it's in the middle of the table, everybody at the table can see that centerpiece. The cross is... Jesus Christ exalted at the cross is the centerpiece of your Bible. When you're reading in your Old Testament, you're looking forward to it. When you're reading in your New Testament, often you're looking back to it. When you're in the Gospels, you're in the middle of it. So keeping the cross and the the ultimate greatness of Jesus in front of our face is, is always, always informed by the Gospel in the Word. Are we studying the Word? Not a checklist but a passion to understand and to live out the expectations and the perspective of our Savior. Number two, we receive gospel instruction from other teachers in the Word. It's what we're doing here. 
those who have been gifted by the Spirit, who are enabled by the Spirit to teach us, and even teaching one another in formal teaching and instruction from others who bring the gospel to bear upon us. Thirdly, we confess the gospel publicly in baptism. This is one way that we keep the cross in front of us. We go publicly and say, I'm one of His. I believe. I follow. I've turned away from everything that I once trusted. And my confidence is entirely in Christ. So we study the word. We receive gospel instruction in the word. We confess the gospel publicly in baptism. We fellowship with the local church in the gospel through singing and conversation, speaking the truth in love to one another, communicating the gospel with each other. That means we actually have to be together in context where we talk, not just listen. And we sing together, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So you are benefiting one another. You're benefiting me as your brother in Christ as we fellowship within the local meetings. Whether that be in your home, on the Lord's Day, grace group, whatever the context would be, fellowship within the local body is a means of keeping the gospel in front of our face. And then, and finally, we actively and unitedly remember and proclaim the gospel of the cross in remembering in the Lord's table. So we collectively, we unitedly and actively proclaim, we preach to each other through communion. It's what God intended. It's why Christ established it. So that we would have an alarm clock spiritually to remind us of the cross, to put the cross right in front of us again, the body and the blood of Christ sacrificed on our behalf. Let me finish our time here before we give our attention to remembering that cross together to give you a few reminders about what we're about to take in the Lord's table. Let me give you a few things that I trust will be an encouragement to you Reminders, maybe new information. The Lord's table is commanded of us as Christians. So that that brings a certain level of severity to what we're about to do. This is not a give or take. This is not optional. This is not, I don't really feel like it. This is commanded of us that we remember through breaking bread and drinking the fruit of the vine. Luke chapter 22 and verse 19, Jesus said, do this. Do this. It's commanded of us. Paul reiterates that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Secondly, the Lord's table is the new covenant equivalent to the Passover. Do you remember Jesus in the upper room? And he says, they're, they're, they're celebrating the Passover. And he says, this is the new covenant. So the Passover feast was an opportunity to remember the blood that was put on the door and the, the, the angel of death that passed over them because they were covered by the blood. Jesus says, You're going to do this as the new covenant celebration, the new covenant reminder of my grace, of my blood shed for you, my blood covering you, the ultimate covering. So it is the new covenant equivalent to the Passover of the old covenant. Thirdly, it's a picture of unity within the local church. This is to embody the unity as we remember together. It should be evident to all that we're unified In Christ, we are partaking of Christ. We're fellowshipping with Christ and with his body as we remember. It is not 
as the Lutheran instruction would give, as Martin Luther misunderstood. It is not an experience of Christ's physical body somehow connected to these elements. Christ is in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He will not be in the bread or the juice in a few minutes. He's secure where he is. He will return for us. And in his absence, he does not promise to come through these elements, but rather he sends his spirit who indwells us until he returns for us after preparing a place for us. We, we celebrate and enjoy great fellowship with Christ at the spiritual fellowship level with him in communion, but he is not somehow connected to these elements physically. And he certainly is not, certainly is not these elements. Don't forget that Jesus, unlike what the Roman church would teach, the false Roman church, Jesus was actually alive when he instituted the Lord's Supper. The disciples never understood that actually what they were eating was his body because he was standing in front of them. And he said, this is my body and this is my blood. These elements are merely symbolic. They connect us by remembrance to the sacrifice of Christ. And it certainly is not his body and blood being re-sacrificed this morning for your atonement. Hebrews chapter 9 makes it evident to us that it is a once for all sacrifice that's been completed. And if you're in Christ this morning, his blood has fully covered you. It need not be shed in a few minutes in your cup of juice. And his body has been broken and sacrificed for you. It need not be broken again in the little wafer that you'll eat. It's not merely a meal or a feast, which is easy for you to understand since nobody's appetite is going to be appeased by what we're going to do. But don't take what we do flippantly. The Corinthians did, and many were sick, and some were dead, for they came to get drunk and to get full in the breaking of the bread and the passing of the cup of the Lord's table. So we take seriously what we do. We remember the cross. This is the greatness of the ultimate one, the Messiah King who gave his life willingly, knowingly, and expectantly for us as his people. And we must come in a manner that that reflects his character and the work that he's done on our behalf. So as we pray together, and as the men come and prepare to pass this now to put the cross in front of our faces, let's consider whether we're coming in a manner that is worthy of what we're remembering. Are we harboring sin? Is there division amongst us? How could we celebrate unity when we're divided among each other? How could we celebrate freedom from sin in a covering when we are carrying sin and harboring sin within us? Don't do it. Set aside this opportunity to give yourself to setting things right before the Lord so that you might come back and reflect with the body, the unity of the body, and the pursuit of righteous obedience before God. Let's pray together and ask God to use this to keep the cross before us.